Today on Anatomy of a Movie, we talk about Tom Ford's second feature, Nocturnal Animals. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Popcorn Talk Network. We are here doing Nocturnal Animals, Tom Ford's second feature film. Um, I'm your host, Marissa Serafini. You can follow me on Twitter at Serafini. So dramatic. Very dramatic. Joining me, that is the voice of the lovely... Caroline Faraday. Hello. How are you doing? I'm great. Uh, Where can everyone follow you? Um, at Caroline Faraday is where you'll find me on Twitter, Caroline underscore Faraday, uh, on that Instagram thing that I'm getting the hang of. God, I'm so modern. <laughs> Social media is hard. I know. All around there. Do you use Snapchat? I don't. That's one of the things I don't do. I don't feel like I could, like, keep up with I Snap. Do. Like, Twitter itself is hard enough. But. I went to a party, the, sorry, hang on, let me just tell me, an, I'm just going to tell an anecdote. When I went to a party with someone who's like Snapchat crazy, and I just lost her to her going, let's just all snap, like, and I was like that. I spent literally two hours with that person and never spoke to them. Oh no, Anyway, I just snapped. Hello Snapchat. Hello everyone on the social medias who are watching us. Nocturnal Animals, directed by Tom Ford. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were your overall thoughts of this film? Well, as you would expect with Tom Ford, it's an incredibly stylish film. Mm -hmm. Very crisp, very well oiled. um, And um, I found it um, incredibly moving. And and obviously it's quite a shocking film. Uh, There's some really shocking, violent, disturbing scenes in it. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, I thought it was super slick, super nice. um, And I came away a little bit traumatised. Same here. I'm glad you said that because I was telling people after I watched this film, this is an an incredibly disturbing film. I think also as a female, it's very hard to watch knowing what happens to the females in this film. Uh, Overall, beautiful movie. Performances were fantastic. Yeah, phenomenal. I can understand why there's already buzz for this film. Um, Performances were great. The style and the visual look of it was fantastic. The story was gripping and uh, like really drew you in but also just the content of it is so dark and i granted i love watching criminal minds every every week on a weekly basis and that's some very dark twisted storylines that i can handle and i thought i was desensitized to a lot of things but the story in this movie so dark it it was very disturbing at the end of it. I had to watch a few episodes of Friends just to feel better. In just that. to get back in the zone. Yeah, I was like, I cannot go to sleep watching this film as the last thing of the day. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about it is that it looks so sort of slick and beautifully kind of put together. And yet it wasn't an expensive movie in movie terms. I mean, I'd be happy with 20 million which yeah, is about what it I mean, costs, the right? Was only I would be like, well, that is a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money. And movie, that, you know, that's not a huge budget to make um, a movie that looks that good. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think they, and it's a bit of a sleeper kind of smaller hit. I tend to like movies like that anyway. I'm not a big blockbuster girl. Like I like, I don't mean like the store. <laughs> Although maybe right. I do. But um, this, do you remember the store? No. Yeah, of course just I do. my age. Oh, I love Blockbuster. Oh, I was sad when they went out. Uh, that opening sequence kind of grabs you. And also I, I love that he did 
an opening sequence. Like, so, you know, movies now, they just go straight in, you're straight into the dialogue. They don't indulge in that kind of James Bond-esque or, like, you know, right. that that proper opening it, sequence, and it is. It's quite a... And it's an intriguing opening sequence, too. Definitely intriguing, and I think it was... When I watched it, because I admittedly I went into this film not really knowing what I was getting myself into. I just heard it was great, and I just went with a blind knowledge of nothing. It's a good idea. And, on this yeah, one. like I didn't have anything really else influence me or knew what it was about. So I went into this, and that was the opening. I was like, okay, it's this kind of film. Um, I think it was beautiful at the beginning because of slow pace with like swelling music, and it already put you at like an uneasy state and you weren't sure like it made you purposely uncomfortable yeah um, i mean and it's not an image we're used to seeing in hollywood which is uh, an overweight person fully stark naked mm-hmm. i mean that's Dancing. not a hollywood image yeah jumping up and down like really using that yeah. that's not a, a regular hollywood image so already you knew that he was kind of going in with this very strong visual yeah, and it might sound terrible, but that's not the Hollywood convention of what beauty exactly. is. And to be have a story set in Los Angeles, showing this as an actual art case gallery, um, that's something that's literally on display to enjoy. I think it just put the regular audience member at uh, like an uneasy state. But it really captivated the audience and already got them drawn in. Yeah, and you're already thinking about those messages that that is about kind of gluttony and, and like, American society and those, mm-hmm. you know, you're already kind of drawn into to what all, all of his messages are. Yeah, in the world of our main character, Susan, um, and what she deals with, and that that's her beauty. That, that's what she sees beautiful in the world, which I... I think was a great way to get the audience engaged. Um, Amy Adams, she comes straight in and, and she does, because Amy Adams does love a bit of heavy breathing, which in the UK, mm-hmm. that's what we think of people making dirty phone calls. I don't know if that's the same. Do you know what I mean? Really? Like, okay. <laughs> be like, oh, get off the phone. And uh, back in the day. And um, mm, happy heady days. Um, <laughs> and I didn't enjoy Amy Adams, so I didn't enjoy Rival very much. Not so much that I didn't enjoy Amy Adams. Oh, really? And I... Okay enjoyed her in this like I engaged with her performance much more I found her character more engaging I found uh you know her nuance more engaged like I think she worked really well with Tom Ford I think so too and we'll we'll definitely get more into Amy Adams performance as well we, we do have a lot to cover but I found the development of this film very interesting with Tom Ford uh he actually uh well this movie is based on the 1993 novel of Tony and Susan by Austin Wright. And Focus Features picked it up for $20 million at the Cannes Film Festival back in 2015. So already it had like good buzz for them to think that this is going to be a successful film. And But Tom Ford himself, a friend of him, gave him this book, and he read it and couldn't put it down. And he he was so engaged with the book that like he was able to option it so fast because no one else was buying the rights to this i think it's interesting because i don't know this book but i cannot imagine having seen this film how you would go about you know like taking it from a book to be a movie because it's there's so many layers to it and a story within a story what a great mind he's got to be able to write that screenplay and direct that and put it together. I think it's one of those movies as well where you've got to do it all because he obviously had this great overall 
vision from the start about how to put that together. And it sounds like he was so enthusiastic about the script. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the fact that, like, he could take a story and translate it to screen, um, a story that not a lot of people know about. I had never heard about it. It's such this. a complicated one. And very complicated, and the characters and the layer and, and the different layers of them, mm. and we'll definitely get into that. But he, Tom Ford, actually, he spent, like, hours writing this book at a really fast pace. Like, he, he was in bed, you know, just, like, hamming her away on the keyboards, you know, typing and translating this. I wondered why he hadn't been returning my calls. <laughs> yeah, he's... No, I know, he was just busy doing this. He was just this. busy writing this. Well, I do feel relieved. <laughs> yeah, he said uh, he locked himself in his bedroom under the covers fully closed and typed away on Final Draft program. You just know that if Tom Ford, by the way, like is sitting at home writing in his bed, he's on like 120 count Egyptian sheets <laughs> right, like you and can just perfectly imagine. pressed, whatever. <laughs> like he's not, he's not got a onesie and like 10 mm. half drunk cups of tea that have just gone cold like that image is just totally different to when I stay in bed all day isn't it? Oh sure like, it still baffles me that Tom Ford you know the leading man of Gucci can write such a beautiful film and like direct such a beautiful film disturbing nonetheless but overall beautiful film yeah stop being so talented it's tom just, ford like back sh- off share the talent man. spread it out man seriously um yeah and I, he was saying that he really likes uh films that have a moral to the story and something that stays with you and challenges you and and, and gives you something that you you take with you and I, and i can say he's definitely achieved that with this movie yeah um, there were, uh, as as usual, you know, anything that's been adapted from like a book or a play or anything to the big screen. There's usually changes in between, and one of the big changes were um, the location setting. In the book, it actually takes place in like the east and northeast section of you know the New England section of the country. Whereas in the film, it actually takes place in Texas. And he says that he changed the location because the the world, in today's world, you would lock the doors in your car, call for help on your cell phone, and it'd be done. Yeah. Like, it'd, it'd be, be a short easily, movie. Yeah. It'd be easily um, be resolved. But so he had to move it to somewhere where theoretically there would be no cell phone service. And um, he also says, write what you know. Uh, as authors tend to write what they know, and he actually knows West Texas very well. He spent a good time of his life there when he was younger. I did have to get over that moment where I thought, what sort of fool would drive down that road at night? And just, just I was just like, look, just book a motel, do it in daylight, and mm-hmm. then... But obviously that, you know, is part of his regret later in the film. I'm getting ahead of myself. No, but it, it makes sense, too, because, it was like, why would you? Granted, he's with his family, so usually you're more successful when you travel with other people than by yourself. And uh, But he, I think there was their line, there's like, well, we're making good time, don't worry, yeah. we'll just make it go they cover it off, don't they, the with whole the, night. Yeah, they, don't they cover it off with the daughter saying, I just want to drive and just get there, like, I don't want to stop. Mm-hmm. They, like, cover, yeah. they cover it off somewhere. Yeah, so, so they already, like, preset it that they're just going to drive through the night and it's going to be a quick and quick yeah. and done and obviously if that was not the case um but yeah let's do talk about the writing and the actual story of this movie um what we, we have to really talk about it but what did you think of we see the family they get stopped on the road and harassed by these three men ferals 
feral in men. In a way, they just crazed men. Um, I'm trying to think of like politically correct way to describe these guys. They. I don't just, think you have to be politically correct about <laughs> but scum. They, yeah, they were because they harassed this innocent family. So, what did you think of the scene? How it all played out as a viewer? What were your thoughts? It is. I'm. I can remember almost curling up in my theater seat. Like I'm. I was kind of. You know. I was like, oh no, oh no, don't get out. You know, like like that. Total blood curdling, mm-hmm. stomach churning, every part of me, every kind of nerve and every muscle was like tense. Right. And, you know, I mean, it was such a tense scene because, you know, what what choices do you make? What, you know, you were asking yourself that question and you, you're dealing with these. Uh, I mean, it was such a he's such a psycho isn't he just Mm -hmm. and you're you're going well what would i do and it's just the most traumatic scene of of working out what happens interestingly as well when you first see isla fisher and you're like oh that's smart Mm -hmm. that's a smart move because everyone models isla fisher and amy adams as it is so the first time that you see her you're like double take oh god it's not her that's isla fisher yeah, and I thought it was interesting. I was like, why have two redheads? They do look different, but the fact that they purposely chose redheads, and I was like, you could get them mixed up, but I thought it was interesting. I was like, okay, the main character is redhead, and then the main character and the actual story story is also redhead. So there had to be some similarities there. Yeah, between the real world and between and the, the novel world. Yeah. world. Um, this, this scene was so incredibly disturbing. And it wasn't really... I mean, it was probably the most disturbing scene out of all of them. Um, there were disturbing moments. But watching this was painful. Because as a woman, I was afraid for the wife and daughter. Um, seeing three guys harass the family. Granted, you know, we had uh, Edward. He, he was also harassed. But seeing what happened to the woman, how they were playing with them, like nothing had no regards for their failings, and how just this whole scene, it's a long scene. It happened for about yeah. like 15 minutes on screen. We were watching all this play out in real time. Um, but the escalation of where it started to how it ended was terrible. Like they're, And the problem was these guys that were harassing them, they were at some points like, okay, they might be okay. They yeah, seem, like maybe they're just Like maybe jerks, they're just but. like, they're, yeah, they're jerks, but in the end they might be nice and they're trying to, offer to help their fix the tires i was like okay did that but like how they just kept changing the character back and forth i'm like okay we obviously can't trust these guys and then getting them physically out of their car like already safety is gone when they're out of the cars and they're running and chasing them into the desert like it it was incredibly painful to watch and it just irked me knowing that guys like this exist and i mean I'm sure there are some women out there that are also crazy too, but the mostly men like this exist in the world and they get away with it. Yeah, it was and pretty. It was a terrifying uh, scene, and to see that um, Jake Gyllenhaal's character Tony, to just see him trying to placate them, trying not to get a rise, or like kind of just being like, "Let's all stay calm. I'm gonna look," you know, and trying to mm-hmm. take care of his family without. Um, uh, escalating anything with these just uh, creatures really that have 
no kind of normal system for like what is and isn't morally correct mm -hmm. like like in any so you can't reason with that you're just dealing with people who have a totally different code and and he's trying to kind of deal with them as if they are maybe sane and maybe see the world the same as him and they don't and they're not going to and and it's oh and, and you that tension of what are they going to do mm -hmm. Is the apprehension, oh, yeah, it's the, on a knife edge as well the entire time. The entire time, apprehension and anxiety, mm. the slow build up. Because, and what was also frustrating is that we see Edward, he's trying his best to protect his family, but in the end, he was also subdued and he he's doing his best, but ultimately, he couldn't save them. Um, it's just so incredibly painful to watch, and I can't imagine going through that. I don't know. It, it felt no. so real, and I thought the performances from everybody in the scene were amazing, it's amazingly scary. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was it was, it was very traumatic. Uh -huh. I can't talk about it anymore. It's going to bring me into the moment. Yeah, no, seriously. Uh, but unfortunately, we do. But we do learn that these three guys they ultimately take the girls, isolate them, rape them, and kill them. And in, just to add, you know, f you know, like really salt to the wound, they, they rape them, kill them, but strip them down and put them together. Like, that is the most degrading thing that you can do to a woman. And to have it to the mother and daughter kill both of them. Yeah, I mean, total um, degradation of them, the worst case scenario um, for the father and husband who feels that he's in the position that he should have been taking care of them and then he is left with the guilt even though you know as a viewer you know that there was nothing else that he could have done no there were you know what other choices were available to him um and to just have everything taken from you um by for nothing for literally for nothing. nothing. For literally for nothing. It's just this total mindless violence. Um, and there's a lot about this film that's Kubrick-esque, but oh, it's very. very clockwork, orange, like feral society, mindless. And the, and the, and the you know, just where the perpetrators are just so grim. Mm -hmm. that, but that's exactly what I was thinking when I was watching this film. It reminded me of the scene where the four guys in Clockwork Orange were harassing that couple in the house in their own personal place in their space yeah in, the, in their space and it's i think it was on that level of uncomfortableness and just anxiety and you feel bad for them and you can't and you feel helpless watching them yeah and that there's it's literally a, nothing you can do yeah that it's a game to the perpetrators that it's that it's entertainment to them and yeah. and uh, yeah and they don't realize it's wrong that's also frustrating. There's so many frustrating things about this film, which I think that's why this film is so good because it really gets you just emotionally engaged. But what was interesting is when we see the shot of the woman and daughter um, naked on the couch, unfortunately dead next to each other, and then you cut back to the actual real story of Susan calling her real daughter, and she's in the her daughter's literally in the same position with her. Yeah, it's an interesting directorial moment. It's a it's an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, and I thought it was beautiful though, and like how they paralleled each other. Yeah, I found it quite freaky. 
actually, because I felt yeah. to have that that kind of juxtaposition. Um, I was just going to say about the those three young people, and I guess what we were talking about, Kubrick, like the thing with all of those characters, they're so grounded in reality. Like, mm-hmm. each, they're so believable, and that's why it was so traumatic that the performance, like, that whole scene is so believable. Anyway, I digress. No, yes, then they do this, like, sleek moment where, I mean, it it's kind of visually beautiful and peaceful that you've gone from watching these two women who've been brutalised, and yet it's, peaceful and and it's in this same moment when you go back to the to the real, real world, world with the daughter yeah um it's beautiful terrible juxtaposition <laughs> yeah it was intense definitely um well what uh, what i did enjoy about this it sounds terrible when i say enjoy but the what i did like about the artistic development mm-hmm. of the story within the story how the story that she's reading does really parallel her life and it reminds her of what she's done in her personal actions, what she's done in the past to her then husband, Edward. Um, but it, it's just, it's, it's beautiful. There's really no other word to say it. Yeah, I, I think, think you really, it starts to become apparent to her how much mm-hmm. of an allegory it is and, you know, as you go through the movie. But like that, that kind of unravels that you start off and you think, oh, maybe this is some sort of love letter to her, and may, you know, what is it going to be? And it's not. It's not a love letter. It's like not a revenge story. Yeah, revenge cautionary tale. Yeah. So, um, I, I think it's interesting because we also see just the flashbacks of Susan and her then husband Edward. Edward, who's also played by Jake Gyllenhaal. So you can see how they're parallel. Um, but what did you think of the flashbacks when they were younger in their 20s and how that story played out to how it, like, writes up and sets up what the story is? Well, apart from being impressed by her Benjamin Button-esque... <laughs> like reversal of age. Reversal of age and just thinking, what do you do? I want to do that. Yeah. Um, What's your skincare regimen? Yeah, <laughs> take me through this. Um, I thought it was a really interesting technique, actually, mm-hmm. to kind of do that and... And very interesting, really, to use, you know, Jake for that role, Jake, for the, like, just... And it was never a problem that he was playing both of those roles. Like, you knew exactly who he was in each position. So it was, that was, I mean, phenomenal performance. But, um, yeah, I just thought it was such an interesting idea. And you get this lovely sense of a love story between them that obviously then has this um, betrayal at the end and... Um, all the all the upset that comes with that, and I guess that she lived in that romantic moment of thinking that she was perhaps forgiven, or that she, you, you know, that she got that, away with it, right? And I think that was that what's parallel with the story, the novel, is that these guys got away with such an unforgivable act, and she got away with such an unforgivable act. Um, but what I did like about the flashbacks of those two when they were younger, that the color, it looked, visually it looked different. And you can yes. tell that the color was warmer. It seemed happier during those times. And we also got the very uncomfortable scene with her mother and where she comes from and why she is kind of defiant and how she, why she is the person she is in that today's society. I think that, that scene where Laura Linney is superb um, Fantastic. Gives, yeah, a really great turn. And 
that gives one, I've got kind of three favourite lines in this movie. And one of them is, we all eventually turn into our mothers from mm. that, from, you know, uh, talking about that. And uh, there's a really great uh, line early on where someone says, I think to Amy Adams, no one really likes what they do. Which I just, it was like, just punctuated in there. And uh, the my third favourite line uh, is when the cop is interrogating... Um, watch flip taylor thingy and um, <laughs> great research there can i no and uh he says who what are you an owl <laughs> like right. that and it was one of the few moments of comedy in the in a, in what other is otherwise is quite a stark mm-hmm. movie actually so that, anyway there's my three favorite lines mm. no that's great that kind of that that who line kind of reminded me of another kubrick film uh full metal jacket like, right oh when we had that I believe it was generally yelling at all the the guys in line. It's like I didn't know they can stack shit that high. You know, you know, yeah, you yeah, had yeah. the the dark lines within it, very dark. The comedic lines in a dark story. Um, but I think Laura Linney's performances was great. And the yeah. the interesting story how she got involved was that Tom Ford actually Googled. Um, he went online and he Googled the line, Best American Actresses Over 30. And wow. Laura Linney was one of them that popped up and he emailed her and asking her if uh, she'd be interested in this in this movie. And she was. And she sent, and she got so involved in the character, like a good actress should, and get it researched into the character that she sent all these pictures of like different types of houses to Tom Ford, and she's like, what kind of house would my character live in? Like, what's her personality like? And she really, just really took the role for that one scene she was in. She really immersed herself, yeah. Um, it's quite interesting, just as an aside to that, that. I mean, how old is Amy Adams? She's 30, is she 40? Amy Adams is now 42. 42, right? Except that when you're looking for someone to play her mother in Hollywood, mm-hmm. best American actress over 30. Over 30, Someone a little bit younger, but could play old. Um, How old is Laura Linney? I, I don't know. I, don't th- I think she's, she's like 10 years 50s. older. Yeah. I imagine she's in her 50s. I think but she's the, only about 10 years older. The great thing older. about Amy Adams is that she could play young. I kind of believed yeah. her in her early 20s, even though she's 40. But she, she just has that look of youth. Yes. And it didn't bother me whatsoever. And I, I liked her look back then in the flashback because she seemed more natural. Her hair wasn't completely straight. It was kind of messy and tousled and... I enjoy that. I liked that personality more than the one that we saw in the everyday Los Angeles life. Yeah. Um, yeah, She. I felt like she'd got a bit frigid in that kind of mm-hmm. her later life, that, like, she kind of got a bit closed. And when you have that scene where she overhears her husband in the elevator with another woman, that she just closes that and and moves on with it, it was really quite a puzzling moment for me of, like, you're not going to. You're not doing anything with that information. You're just gonna, what, process it and take a pill? Accept like what? It. Accept it. It's also interesting because with the flashbacks, we did learn that Susan did, in a way, cheat on Edward back then. And I think it was kind of karma and kind of poetic that it came full circle that her then husband was not cheating on her. It's kind of karma. Yeah. Kind of karma. And I think she kind of knew that too and just accepted it. It was kind of, it was uh, frustrating that she didn't do anything about it, but she knew of it and she just let it be. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it would have been in keeping with her character, but like I was literally like, oh, give him hell, sweetheart. Come on. <laughs> He's in the elevator with a lady. Come on. Mm-hmm. Anyway. And there's the, the, the other scene, the only other scene that I thought was 
the dialogue was odd was there's a scene with her secretary and I can see why they put this moment in where the secretary says, is talking about the first husband, she says she was married before and Mm -hmm. says of the first husband, uh, did you love him? Like, I don't know a huge amount about what dynamics are like between secretaries and their bosses, Mm -hmm. but I'm pretty sure that that's an impertinent question (laughs) in that, like, it it was a weird moment where I was like, that's feels like a very personal, instantly personal moment in quite an impersonal situation. Yeah, I mean, I can understand that too. But you know what? I didn't mind that conversation because mm. she's not going to have that conversation with her husband. Right. She didn't have that conversation with her friends at that dinner party. Right. So I, I kind of actually understood it because I think I've seen in a lot of television shows and in a lot of movies and you know American movies and stuff that there is a good working relationship usually between the boss and the and the secretary um so I actually believed the fact that they could have this kind of intimate conversation well maybe it was to kind of emphasize the isolation that she's got that that's the person who asks like the most key question to Mm -hmm what's going on really like did you love it like did you love her such an emotional huge emotional question in a a really non-emotional scene it's a big question because at that point in the movie she's already started to read the book of her first husband so like i think she is just personally questioning did she actually love him the fact that on some level i do believe that they loved each other yeah 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 she loved him yeah and you can definitely tell he loved her. Oh, yeah. And he was more heartbroken to have this story and give it to her as a revenge story. Yeah. You know, definitely in a way. But, yeah, I mean, we, we've kind of gotten into it. But, yeah, let's talk about Amy Adams and her performance. I'm a big fan of Amy Adams. I've seen most of her work, if not all of it. Um, but what did you think of her portrayal of Sue? I actually loved her in this. I, I really did. Um, I thought she gave this... Very fresh, and she kind of uh, drew the line between being quite buttoned up and then you got that feel of, like, when she was younger and wanted to take on the world just a little bit more and that she'd lost that a little bit throughout the years and that she had some guilt about her choices and uh, what they were and then what the repercussions of that were for her that she now had made her bed and was lying on this, you know, situation that she'd chosen and created and... Um, and that she was intrigued by... I thought there was a coldness in her relationship with with her husband, like, really early on, but it seemed that they had just such a formal relationship anyway. Like, mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot. It didn't seem like a very affectionate... Um, Mutual relationship. Yeah, I, I agree, because it seems like a relationship on the surface looks perfect, and in within the friend's eyes, it's a definitely a superficial type of relationship. Yeah. But when they're to g- together alone, you can really tell there's really not a lot of love there. No. There's no affection towards each other. It's kind of like business. And they're still together for appearance's yeah. sake, but not out of love. Yeah, it lacked warmth, but mm-hmm. I think it was supposed to lack yeah. warmth. It was supposed to be stark, like all of those white rooms that were in the exactly. movie, I think. Like it was that cold, stark, quite quite uh, um, functional 
You know, it was, yeah. a, it was just, it's just fun. I just paint, painted that white because it's a functional thing to do with a wall, but it's interesting. Modern, lacking, you know, it lacked color. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because the Los Angeles representation for this film, um, L.A., where you think it's, like, pretty and different types of color, um, Tom Ford purposely put it, it's gray, it's urban, it's foggy, it's sad. It's cold, and that's really a reflection of where Susan is, where she is in her life. Um, so, yeah, I definitely got that because there was no warmth. There was no color in Susan's life, at, in her house, at her work. Um, she just lives in a really sad world. Yeah. Even and the, the wardrobe she was wearing was all black. Yeah, and we just, like, because it, it was, that it was just lacking color really that that the world her world was black and white Mm -hmm. definitely definitely and I feel like Edward brought some color into it and she perhaps rejected that and rejected that being in her world Mm -hmm. It, it seems like she had a lot of insecurities about herself therefore she projected that onto Edward and made it and pointed out his potential insecurities I think when you're younger like I resonated with her in a in a un, in a in a way that traumatized me, to be honest with you, as like um, having you know, like you do look back at your choices you make in your twenties about the people who um, love you and the the way that you the choices that you made with regards to that when you were in twenties and what your priorities were and like where you were going. And I had I really struggled with like parts of that that resonated with me on like a personal level that I was a uh, that were like a bit of a hit if I'm honest like too close to yeah 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 so a couple of bits of that there were a couple of brutal moments interesting and I definitely believe that because I feel people in their 20s are still trying to figure out who they are and what they're doing with their life like that I relate to Yeah. yeah so I I had some empathy for her I know she was kind of painting his old, you made this bad choice and you hurt this nice guy and he loved you. Um, and then there, I had a little bit of empathy of like, you know, that was 20 years ago and let's say that she's playing her real age. Like, are the choices you make when you're 22, like, should you still be being hit around the head with those when you're 42? And since then have tried to live your life mm-hmm. well and decent. Like, like she was likeable and had made good, you know tried to make good moral choices since then, but she was still being, um, yeah, like, like she was still paying for a decision she made when she was, let's say, yeah. 22. Yeah, when she was younger. Um, I'm, bl- I'm glad you brought that up because Tom Ford said um, when he was casting for Susan, he says, Amy was the first that was attached to the project. I wanted her desperately because I wanted this character to be sympathetic. Mm. This is a woman you could hate she has everything. She did something terrible to her first husband. Amy has a soulful quality in her eyes, and you cannot, you can't not respond to her on, um, on her character. She has the ability to telegraph her thoughts when you're watching her. For, which I, you know, I completely agree. This is a character you can easily hate. On the surface, couldn't seem superficial. I mean, like, why are you sad in your life? You literally have everything that you could ever want or dream, and people has such an unattainable life that people can only imagine. Um, but, like, I like the fact that they did ground her and they made her realistic because she did human things that can make her in an immoral kind of person. Yeah, she still felt vulnerable. 
and yeah. that you had that vulnerability built into a character that could have been hard or could have been dislikable or um, uh, just a bit obnoxious, you know, mm-hmm. like that actually she was um, just really grounded in this this truth of her vulnerability in that scene that like, you know, that she was reflecting on her choices and whether or not she was the person that she had set out to be and... You know, that everything that's glossy on the outside isn't necessarily how it is on the inside. inside. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I think Amy did great. Yeah. Um, in this well done, Amy. Thank you. Job. I like you better in this than in Arrival. <laughs> I did enjoy Arrival. Um, but, you know, I kind of agree. Uh, let's talk about Jake Gyllenhaal. He's okay. always fantastic. Uh, but I loved him because his performance... He and essentially he had like two different characters that he mm. had to play. Um, we had the the boyfriend and then the actual main character in the actual novel. Um, let's talk about his novel performance uh, as Tony Hastings. Yeah, I mean it's phenomenal. It's almost wow. a bit like yeah, he's phenomenal, wow. and it totally showcased Gyllenhaal. It's almost like a theatre performance where... Have you ever seen those plays where there's, like, two actors but they play, like, 10, 12 different characters? Yeah. And you're thinking, this will be awful. And then it's incredible because it's just a different nuance, like, the way they hold themselves. Like, it's the tiniest change. And the mm-hmm. uh, and I know they did a couple of more obvious things, like making Physical. him more useful and uh, youthful and, and the facial hair and stuff. But actually, like, it was it was all in the movement. And, and like, that's such a finessed um yeah just it just showcased him and what he can do as an actor like and that range uh of what he could do as an actor i thought what do you think absolutely i completely agree i i loved his performance as tony hastings because i believed him as such a vulnerable man who tried to do the best for his family and he just ultimately failed and he wanted a retribution for what was done wrong to his wife and daughter and I felt so bad for him because he was pointing out all these guys who were involved but yet nothing was happening they were getting they were still getting away with it like yeah we arrested him but nothing was coming about it afterwards um I believed him and I just felt bad for him because you're rooting for justice in this story you want him to actually have these guys put away and like he was part of that um, but I believed him because he, I just felt so bad for his situation and I would never wish that upon anyone to go through that. There was also that moment where, of course, um, he was faced with the opportunity to just literally pull the trigger. And you've got that um, similarity between, uh, you know, his real-world character as, as a youth and then uh, we've got Tony. And both of them you're challenging, like, are you weak? Are you kind? Like, mm-hmm. what is this? And ultimately that even killing those people is not going to bring back his wife and daughter. Like, nothing is going to put his life back. Yeah, nothing is going and to make it okay. And he has to wrestle with that. Like, yeah. there's an, also, there's just this amazing bit where... Um, Jake Gyllenhaal is, like, in a mess, right? And he's kind of falling out of that thing. And he's the most 
like perfectly dressed, mm. like amazing shirt that fits perfectly with like darted, and then these like perfectly fitting, um, uh, 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 like suit pants, like trouser <laughs> pants, right? They're like that are like beautifully cut and look like Tom Ford handcrafted them like at Forehead. night, like you know, he's <laughs> just like, I've got this, Jake, and <laughs> just like, I'll do this. And like, I was like, I've never seen, and like, it was the most beautiful, like, it was in the most beautiful outfit covered in blood i was like oh this is a stylish movie <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're supposed to look bad but you still look great yeah you know? he was so well dressed mm-hmm. uh, as he as he I yeah agree. I got agree. covered in blood um but i you know props to jake for having two completely different characters in mm. this film and they l- seem completely different mm. like you can eagle easily distinguish one from the different like the other there you, there was no bleed like i believed him as the boyfriend husband back then and i believe him as this torn this man who's had literally everything ripped away from him and you just feel that his performance was was great yeah i completely understand why there's oscar buzz um oh yeah for their performances in this film definitely jake gyllenhaal yeah in this because it got to a point where i uh, i was just in feeling the exact pain that he was yeah um, and it's also kid. interesting that he had to play certain characteristics that were the same in Tony as they were with, like, young uh, Edward. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you had these same characteristics, but, you know, he had to play them to a different level. So, like, maybe he's playing it to a three, and then he's playing it to a seven here, and you're like, oh, wow, that's like a real fine-tuning on what you're doing. I mean, it's, it's a very skilled performance. Uh Agreed, um, I think. And I'm just a big fan of Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. He's great. Um, Michael Shannon, who plays uh, Bobby Andes. Um, what did you think of this character? I had a hard time, um, I wouldn't say like believing, but I was having a hard time figuring this character out. I couldn't tell if he was a crooked cop or he was someone to actually trust. But in the end, it seems like he he really just wanted what was, you know, justice to be done on these guys. Yeah, he was very old school, wasn't he? Um, I mm-hmm. spent a lot of time thinking, is he in with these? Like, what, particularly when, right. it, when it's like, give, the case is like given to him. I felt like a real moment of uh, losing hope for just a moment. I thought, oh no, and he's going to be in with those all, he's probably related to them, or he's probably there. Like, I thought there was going to be something with that. But actually, you know, he's just an old school cop who eventually is as frustrated with it. And I, um, I did know, cause I noticed the smoking thing. And as soon as he gave one little, <coughs> I was like, Oh, he's going to have lung cancer. Like, and then like he, ca- they, they brought the coughing in more and more. And then eventually there's like this big reveal. And I was like, I knew you had, I knew that cough. <laughs> knew that was like, I knew that was a cough like that. Like that's not a healthy cough. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, um, so once I kind of started to clock that, and then you think, well, how will that play out? And, of course, then he's got nothing to lose. He knows uh, what's coming to him anyway. And, you know, he ends up being this great ally. Yeah, like, I'm glad that they actually, this, again, might sound terrible, but the fact that they used a mental con- condition to give his character motivation to actually do something and get justice on these guys, I like that because it it motivated his character enough to actually do what was right at the end that ultimately helped Tony um, catch these guys. And um, 
I really, uh, overall, I really did enjoy Michael Shannon because he was gruff. I would not want to mess with him. And I'm glad he's the kind of guy who would kind of go off the books just yeah. to get something done. Yeah. And every once in a while, you need those guys. Like, immorally, maybe. But in the end, if it got it, got the job done, I'm for it. I think you needed someone like him as well to be able to talk to uh, those kind of character like to have the authority with those characters because he was like a bit renegade and a bit edgy and quite earthy and like mm-hmm. I think if you'd had like a more city kind of person that like you wouldn't have been able to kind of engage um with you know like the, with the with right. the horrible guys with the mean guys yeah I, I love that because Bobby Andes like I could believe he this kind of guy could stand toe-to-toe with yeah. these three pieces of mm-hmm. crap um, because we saw Tony couldn't do that. Tony couldn't face these guys. But Andes didn't give a crap, and he was like, yeah, I can face them. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad he was the, the strength that Tony wasn't. Yeah, and they knew that mm-hmm. about him. Because, I mean, there was a moment in the vehicle where, you know, they're sitting in the back, and you're thinking, is he going to, like, go for it? Is he going to challenge him? And you could see, like, he kept his power with them because like they were a little bit in, intimidated by this guy because he could he could he could relate to them because I think he was kind of earthy and you could shake him up yeah shake him up um in a good way uh we, we talked about Laura Looney a little bit but let's talk about Army Hammer playing the the husband the then husband of Susan they're probably gonna get a divorce I you know I like him I still question whether or not he should have been in this film. He wasn't my... uh, He was my one weak link, and not because I dislike him, but um, because when they started to say that they'd been together for 20 years, and, like, it just... Mm -hmm. I didn't buy it. Like, he looked 25. Yeah, I didn't buy it either. Yeah, and so I found that... um, But he was terribly handsome, and it was nice to look at. So thank you, Army. (laughs) Right. Um, um, now, I, if, when they're talking about Oscar bars and uh, people who are going to win awards, there is no doubt in my mind that Aaron Taylor-Johnson Aaron is firstly phenomenal in this, but is going to continue to be phenomenal. I mean, he... Yeah. He's the new Tom Hardy, right? He's got that psychopath so. quality in his eyes. Do you know what we're good at in the UK? Turning out psychopath, psychopathic actors. It seems like it. Um, hmm. But you know what? Good for you guys. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yes, because we need more of those guys out in the world. Uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson. Holy crap, his performance. I was riveted. Oh. Um, he gave such a strong performance. I over like watching this film I completely forgot he was kick-ass you know like to think that he could take on so completely different roles and get immersed in this character he was scary yeah um there were points where he was just like he seemed drunk and you just couldn't take him seriously but there was others where he just looked maniacal yeah he was a he was the proper stuff in nightmares yeah he was your nightmare, like literally yeah. nightmare. And I think the one, the two things in this film that like scared the crap out of me, and I wasn't expecting it out of this kind of film, were when they had the quick shot of the rape scene, and then there was the quick moment where you hear this like animal hiss, like <sighs> I can't even do it. But then when the second shot where you had uh, when she's looking at the, the baby monitor app, 
and then you see his character animal like really quickly. Oh yeah. Oh my god, the whole that scared the shit out of me. Yeah. Um, it's I almost like a Freddy Krueger, like old school scary it movie was, moment, it, isn't it? Of like, like a real shock. It, it, I think it was perfectly placed in it because you weren't expecting it. Yeah. And it, but it made his character all the more scary because, in an essence, he is an animal. Oh yeah. He's he's the epitome of an animal. Yeah. Um, and that it was, you know, that you learned that it was psychologically affecting her in that mm-hmm. way and like really getting into her and. I felt like I came away from that movie psychologically disturbed by him. Yeah. Like he disturbed me. He was he was such a like this total feral nightmare uh, and and just so disgusting the whole time. Yeah, and and it like shower. in his eyes. In his eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he, oh. there was a shot where he's like sitting on the bed but he's staring like practically at the camera but not really but almost breaking the fourth wall that he's like peering right into you after what the audience have already witnessed what he's done on screen and knowing what he's capable of yeah it's just scary knowing that he might do this again you don't know if he will kill tony it it was scary Um, so he's got a nod already for a golden globe as best supporting actor and i would say that that would be um if you are a betting person a very smart bet to place and generally that's an indication of that that something might go on oscar wise and i i just think he's he gives such a phenomenal performance he's 26 years old i know he's my age he's 26 years old uh, and he's married to um, Sam Taylor Wood, of course, in real life, who's 49. Well done, Sam. There you go. And uh, actually, Tom Ford um, is good friends with his wife, so and that's how she's involved in this film, too. But I feel like there's no nepotism involved in yeah. his casting. Like, he, he is absolutely there on merit. Yeah, definitely, like, for sure. His talent... Um, was through the roof. It was almost uh, too oh, good because he was too horrible. It was too scary to watch that when I was, uh, granted, I was watching this film by myself, being a woman in my 20s, watching this by myself at night. Uh, when I walked back to my car, granted, at night, alone, I had to look in the backseat of my car because like, I, I did not trust like anybody who walked near me. I was like, I don't know. That's how unease I was after watching this film. Yeah. I was like seriously afraid for my life. Um, but that's how good his performance was that it made it so believable. Okay, okay. Yeah, he's awful. <laughs> like, and you do go over in your head of like, oh, he's just so... Oh, it's just it's so grim. Disturbingly great. Um, let's get into the production and the cinematography. We talked a little bit about the the overall look of this, but we had Seamus McGarvey, um, and who was the DP, and Shane Valentino, who was the production designer. But Seamus McGarvey, who's a two-time Academy Award nominee um, for Atonement and Corinna, uh, we need to talk about Kevin, which is also another beautifully disturbing film. It really we is, yeah. I've seen that. Um, but the interesting thing that I found out that Ford didn't really turn up with photographs, movies, and visual references for this film, but rather simply talked about his vision for the picture hmm. with Seamus. Uh, I mean, which I kind of find that hard to believe, knowing that Tom Ford is a very creative person. I guess um, maybe he's but, very good at describing uh, things with his with his words of like um, yes. and bringing that alive. And um, I think he had such a strong vision from the moment of reading this book that that he could 
you know, engage with that and then mm-hmm. come together to kind of make that that um, uh, process, uh, you know, just, you know, really make it work. And they obviously, you know, there's some spectacular shots where they shot it out in the Mojave Desert of uh, just, yes. like, none. Nothing. None. No life. I drove with a guy. Have you been to Death Valley? No. Because I drove with a guy, and I've got a Fiat 500... <laughs> Right, <laughs> I drove to Death Valley in my Fiat 500, and um, uh, because when I look at a map, I think, well, that can't be that far, can it? Because yeah, I'm from England, and so it won't be. And then, and then it's like 200 miles of nothing yeah. and no other cars and a long straight road, and you, and me, and my, uh, I went with a girlfriend. We were like, if something happened here, like. You would never know. Like, you would, you just, no one would find you, nothing. Like, if I was, I'm not inclined at any point to hit someone over, like, the head with any sort of implement and, like, take them somewhere. Mm -hmm. But I feel like if you were going to do that, the Mojave Desert is sort of the place to to just, like, get away with it. And get lost. (laughs) Yeah, because it's just vast and desolate and every bit of it is, like, unidentifiable and and just just long just long um but that also makes the situation all the more real when you can believe that a situation where these three guys are harassing a perfectly innocent family and can get away with it with no witnesses in a in a location like that yeah i think that adds to the realness of what happened um were you going like when they first are going down that road and the car's drawing up, like, next to him. Were you going, like, oh, just, just like, stop and, like, drive back to, like, where you just... Just, like, make that choice because these people are, like, horrible people. You should go home now. Like, you should just just turn just around. around. Well, also, this is, like, when the first encounter on the road, when you see an a-hole driving up on you, just pull off to the side and let them pass and keep on their merry way. But the fact that they kept going and in a way, still enticing them to, like, still harass them just and get them off the road. That was just frustrating to watch. I was like, as a regular driver, you would just pull over and let them pass you. Yeah. Um, there was a little There was happen. a little moment. But I suppose you're supposed to think that when the daughter, like, gives him the bird out the back window, that, like, that they've then spotted, oh, there's a girl, like, a vulnerable young girl in that. Oh, I didn't You know, that that's the that. moment that they spot that uh, what they could have i guess i didn't even think about that that's crazy just throwing it in there like, oh that's someone we can have fun with oh, terrible there's grim just imagine that terrible. every decision they make is grim and disgusting and for grim disgusting reasons yeah. but uh we can get a little bit into the directing tom ford uh this is his second film his first one being a single man which is also a beautiful movie about isolation um have you seen that one no, I have Colin seen that, Brown. and then I've muddled it in with, like, a load of other movies. But yes, I have. Yes, but, uh, yeah, he, he obviously he was drawn to this story. But what did you think of his direction on this one? I just think it was so handsomely crafted all round, really. And he obviously got great performances out of the actors, had a great overall vision for it, and, and gave this um, very slick presentation. And the... I think some people that jars that it that it is such a, a, a like edgy movie but so slick. Um but I thought actually I kind of liked how oiled it was and that okay. that like it had that it looked so stylish but dealt with such 
dark topics. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Um, I loved the look of it, uh, and the the story was easy to follow, um, and, and connected on a human level. Um, what people should be feeling and like made you uncomfortable. I think he did a great job in letting you know what's happening. Um, visually, I liked it because it definitely showcased the parallelism between these two stories. And you had, there, there was a shot where when Susan was like at work and she was looking at that painting that literally said revenge. It was kind of like on the nose a little bit because what's going on in her life. This is a revenge story from her ex-husband telling her and haunting her with the story of what she's done in her past. Um, I like those connections that I don't think we needed, but it really like hit the nail on the head for the audience. Like, yeah, this is this kind of story. Yeah, I don't know if I felt slightly patronized by the revenge picture yeah. when she was looking at that. Because I was like, I do get it, Tom. Like, mm-hmm. I get your movie, but thank you for like dropping a little thing in. But I think because it was such a nice piece of art, anyway, it was yeah. kind of fun it was to modern. see. Um, but but that that he's that his ambition was to make this moral tale where you took something with you. Like for me, I was like, yeah, fair play. Like mm-hmm. you absolutely gave gave me that journey of coming away and and not only having an experience with that movie, but like it it affecting me to a point where I was like, what were my choices? Like like how do I feel about those? Like what what. Yeah, like it really. Yeah, gave me a bit of a bit of a uh, sucker punch. It was. I mean, I think the great thing that I walked away with this movie feeling uncomfortable, and I think that was what he was going for. Right, was uncomfortable, but that just shows like how great the performances were. Yeah, that still resonated with you at the end. Um, movies that leave you... I mean, there's so many movies out there, you're like, okay, done, next. Right. And this one stuck with me to a point where I was like, oh. Yeah. It really hit you. Um, It still sticks with me. We're still talking about it. Yeah, no, I was kind of shaken up. I saw it in the morning, and I spent like a whole day just feeling like I'd been in a car crash. Yeah, see, oh, I can't imagine seeing it in the... Because if you see it in the morning, it could ruin... This is the type of movie that can ruin your entire day. Yeah. Um... But Did I you ever, um, like, going back, but, like, I, the only other time I can remember coming away and just going, like, oh, it was, like, the, the end scene of The Last King of Scotland, which mm. is just brutal end scene. And I just remember sitting there going, I don't, I don't, I just don't think I can do anything right now. I feel like someone's hit me. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I, I've had those movies. There was a day, not to completely digress from this movie, but there was a day I watched Precious and oh. Never Let Me Go. Back to back. Whoa. Early in the morning. Those both are very depressing movies. I was completely ruined for the whole yeah. entire day. But those were great films. Yeah. I um, mean, I think this is definitely one of those films that it's so good that you can't really process anything else yeah. afterwards. Yeah, it's very, very emotional. Um, I think the, the music was great. We could talk a little bit about that. We had Abel Korzeniowski, who's also done Penny Dreadful, if you've ever seen that show. Oh, yeah. So amazing. Um, such a great show. You all should watch it. Um, I cover the after show on our sister network, After Buzz TV. So I'll plug, go watch that. Um, the music was amazing especially i mean i th- there were certain moments in this film that you can definitely see where it was placed what i found out in our research was that he actually did only about 30 minutes of music 
And it's a it's a two hour movie, but the small amount of music that he composed were so strategically placed throughout the film that every time you heard it, it was there and you can hear it and it's meant to be there yeah and they've worked together before um on a single man that and uh he got a golden globe nomination for their score for that one um Um, so and they made it in london why wouldn't you it's a lovely place recorded in london with their session players orchestral forces were stronger and there were some electronic elements to this and i think that kind of reflects the the modern world that susan was living in and uh yeah ford and korzanowski spotted the film sparsely, leaving much of the film unscored so that when the music does come in, it's more impactful. Um, for the promotion for this film, it, in early September, it was at the Venice Film Festival where it got it got the Grand Jury Prize. I mean, it is one of those kind of festival hits. You can just imagine it being a great festival hit. And I love it when those come through and start taking on uh, the, the bigger... Uh, hitters in terms of what they had to spend you know those big spend movies yeah. uh, because actually um, this isn't a big spend movie I mean we said that earlier um, it's not even a big box office movie but I do think as those nominations start to come through you know got coming into award season um, that people will say oh, we should go and watch them it's so competitive at the moment you it know you go to the movies and you're like well there's this and there's Star Wars and then that you know like Mm -hmm. there's just so many great movies to choose from Um, and that this maybe as a smaller film ends up getting discounted and it shouldn't be because you know it it really holds its own it does it does and um, but it took what 8.8 million um, as of December 18th uh, the total life the domestically was about 8.8 million Foreign was about 11... 11.4. So they made it, yeah, yeah 20.2 million. Um, and they kind of, oh, yeah, so they had their opening weekend was 3.2 million, so it was seventh at the box office. Yeah. I mean, if you break it down to numbers, that it doesn't seem like the most successful, but it is a smaller budget film with bigger names, bigger critically acclaimed names. Um, overall, I think this movie... Um, will definitely resonate longer than a lot of big box office movies right now. I mean, Granny had Rogue One, which was fun, but a completely different film from this. Uh, I think the performances were better in this film than they would be in a lot of other just blockbuster movies. Um, overall, I really enjoy this. I mean, it's getting high um, numbers, too. IMDb is at 79 Ryan Tomatoes seventy two, audience seventy eight. So it's pretty consistent. Would you? What would you rank this film? Yeah, like, I mean, I think it's high? a. So, I think it's a solid eight out of ten. To be honest with you, like yeah. I think it's a really solid movie. Um, I certainly like it a lot better than other things that have been that there's been more buzz about. You know, at, at the moment. So um, I just think there's so it's just stiff competition at the box office, and I'd like to see this get um, more eyes on it because I think it deserves it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, granted, this movie came out uh, December 16th, so for, for us, it's been a while. Uh, but I've, I heard that like, there was so much buzz going into this. I, I said at the beginning, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Right. But that's how great this film is, that people are just talking about it. Um, I, I definitely think this is going to get some more Oscar nominations. Acting performances were phenomenal heck yeah. even editing could get in there i mean we, we could talk a little bit about the editing um by jones sobel there there was a moment where i thought the edit was great um near the end 
when Tony finally shoots him, um, shoots Ray Marcus, and he's bleeding out on the field because he it looks like he accidentally shoots himself. I don't know if that was on purpose. Jake kind of, Gyllenhaal ends? Yeah. Yeah, because he's blinded, so he falls yeah, on blind, his gun. And he falls on his gun and he shoots himself. But you hear with the sound mixing also, but the cutting back and forth between Tony and Susan, from the real life to the story, back and forth, and with the mix of this heartbeat, like fading, it yeah. starts fast and is fading down to nothing. I thought that was so simple, but yes, so effective. Yeah, it was a real... Um was a really compelling moment, wasn't it? Of yeah, I that did really stand out, and just because you get that audio change where you, where you get that, like it immediately kind of just brings you back in and and kind of engages you back in. So yeah, good spot. Yeah, literally, like the metaphor for like you're seeing life literally to death. Um, and it was the and it was the death of what she thought as well was gonna mm-hmm. yeah the death and like it, the just the shot of. Him dying and her emotionally alone. dying. Yeah. Uh, alone that, in her that moment dying, yeah. Oh, my goodness. What a film. Yeah. <laughs> what a film. No, I needed, the, you know, those three whiskeys she had at the end? I was literally like, share, Susan. Yeah. I yeah. need one now. Yeah. Well, we can quickly talk about, before we wrap up, the very end scene. Right. Where we have her email... Her husband being like, yes, let's have dinner, let's meet up and talk. And then she ends up getting stood up. What right. did you think about the ending? It was, um, I never know how I feel about sad endings. Because we are so conditioned to have a happy ending mm-hmm. on a movie. And this doesn't have one. And, like, it doesn't have one for anybody. Like, like the cop dies of lung cancer and Jake Gyllenhaal uh, accidentally shoots himself and he would have been blinded anyway and he's already lost his wife and kid and they've been dead and they're raped. And then um, she gets stood up um, and, like, loses this dream moment and, like, her husband's cheating on her. And so, like, it's this... It's got a very unhappy but real, like, it's so real and believable. And I literally was like, oh, oh God, <laughs> this is awful. Like, there's yeah. no moment where you're like, and just a little happy, here's a little happy moment for you just at the end, just to leave you nope. feeling that you are going to leave feeling terrible Yeah, no. about yourself and life and all the things in between. But having watched a great film. Yeah. And at the end, it's really, I remember just thinking to myself, I was like, oh, that's it. Right. There is there is nothing. There is really no retribution. I mean, granted, they die. Like, basically everyone dies except for Susan. But, I mean, it wasn't really out of happiness. I mean, it wasn't out of justice. It just happened. Yeah, there was, um, there's no, there's no, no happy endings in this film. And I, but, Tom, do you need to talk to us? <laughs> like, you are you trying to Do you need counselling? <laughs> can you try to talk it through? We can, you know, it's fine. It's okay to believe in happy endings. It's okay. Um, no, I, yeah. Oh, well, it was a beautiful film. It really, yeah. Beautifully disturbing film. Yeah. That's all. I think maybe, Tom, if you wouldn't mind, because I like watching your movies, just do something a bit cheerier. <laughs> just a little next bit. time. Um, um, well, like, if you think about it, a single man was kind of depressing as well yeah at the end 
especially for that. Let's not think about it. It's too depressing. (laughs) Right. But yeah, I mean, that, you know, that it it is a very brave choice to to decide to have a a completely unhappy ending. It's just a brave, a brilliant and brave choice. But it kept the whole film grounded in the reality of what it was. And of course, it was the payoff for the entire allegory that we'd been watching. Absolutely. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in and listening for our dissection of nocturnal nocturnal animals. In the meantime, where can everyone keep following you, Caroline? Um, you can keep following me on at Caroline Faraday. That's F for Freddie, by the way. E R A D A Y. Not not like the A, like the like the cars. F E R. Yeah. There you go. And you can follow me on Twitter at Serafini TV. You can follow all of us here on the Popcorn Talk Network at the Popcorn Talk. Keep tuning in to our dissections. We have more Oscar-worthy movies down the pipeline, and then we have fun movies that we've done in the past. So keep tuning in. Thank you, everyone. Have a good, safe, fun Christmas holiday or whatever holiday you celebrate with your friends and family. And we will see you next time. See you next time. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the rest of the Anatomy of a Movie staff, we would like to thank you for listening and subscribing to the show. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email or tweet us. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been Anatomy of a Movie.